Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're about to listen to The Road to War, the first episode in a five-part Irish history podcast production on the Irish Civil War. Now, the full series is exclusively available for supporters of the show and features the leading Irish historian, Dr. Brian Hanley from Trinity College Dublin. So if you enjoyed this episode, get the entire five-part series today on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Becoming a supporter on Patreon is really easy and when you sign up you not only help me create more content but you'll also get the rest of this series on the Irish Civil War, my audiobook on the Black Death along with hours of bonus podcasts. Oh and I forgot to mention everything over there including the Norma Show is all available ad free. So become a supporter today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You'll find the link in the show notes below. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is The Road to War, Episode 1 of the Irish Civil War. This series is exclusively available for you, the supporters of the show. Thanks so much for your support. It means an awful lot to me and makes such a difference. I hope you enjoy listening to this series as much as I did putting it together. It was a really fascinating one to make. Now while I'm going to get right into the topic of the Civil War, I just want to explain how the series will be structured because this is the first episode. Each podcast is based around a conversation with Dr. Brian Hanley. Brian is an assistant professor in 20th century Irish history in Trinity College, Dublin. He is also a leading authority on the revolutionary era and the republican movement and his perspectives on the civil war are a fresh take that challenge common misconceptions that are taken as given. Finally, a word of thanks to Brian for his time, to Kate Dunley for her work on sound, to Stuart Redden for his research and most importantly to you for your support which makes it possible to create content like this. Now to the podcast. The Irish Civil War from June 1922 to May 1923 remains one of the most important conflicts in modern Irish history. Yet it was surprisingly brief and the death toll by European standards of the time was very low. The war lasted around 11 months, there were very few large-scale battles and while experts differ on casualties, 
it's generally agreed that less than 2,000 people were killed. To offer something of a comparison, in Finland, a country of a roughly similar size, around 30,000 people were killed in a civil war that lasted about half the time. However, death tolls are a very limited metric to understand the impact of a war. In 2020, the historians Yunan O'Halpin and Dahi O'Koran wrote in their book The Dead of the Irish Revolution, Death is not an accurate index of the level of political turmoil or its impact on a people. And this is certainly the case when it comes to the civil war. It haunted Ireland and Irish politics for generations. So much so that journalists today still write articles questioning if civil war politics is being played out in Ireland in the 21st century. Now the bitterness that this war engendered was evident from the get-go. During the course of our conversation, Brian recalled this story that took place at the end of the conflict. Now that might sound like a strange place to start a series on the civil war, but this account conveys the depth of bitterness the war created and contextualises what we're about to discuss. In the winter of 1923, there was a major hunger strike of Republican prisoners, and this actually involved thousands of prisoners, of course. But during the, the course of that strike, I think, it was an IRA man named Bob DeCourcy who was in jail with Ernie O'Malley, and he, he remarked to him that he couldn't remember a thing about the Tan War, not a damn thing. Now, this is only a couple of years, if that, after. The, the end of, of the, the War of Independence. So I suppose it shows you how the Civil War ultimately clouded the memory of those involved in it about earlier events and about past comradeships and past struggles, but also then how it poisoned, I think, the, glor- the four glorious years, if they were that, how for many people they were poisoned by the outcome. And I suppose, again, I suppose we forget that a large chunk of those who'd taken part in the Easter Rising and taken part in the War of Independence sat out the Civil War, were neutral, didn't want to take part in it. And that even for those who did take part in it, I think it did cancel out to a great degree any glory that there might have been in the fight for independence. Again, Frank Aiken said early on in the Civil War, you know, that in his view, war against the foreigner brought out all that was honourable in a nation, with Civil War all that was mean and base. And I think there is a sense that it did poison what had been this huge national movement in pursuit of independence. So in this series, the question, myself and Brian essentially set out to explain, is what exactly happened in Ireland between 1922 and 1923 that could have such an impact? And this takes us back to the summer of 1921. By that point, the War of Independence had raged in Ireland for two years. Then, finally, a truce between Crown Forces and the IRA was hammered out and came into effect in July 1921. This led to months of negotiations between the Republican movement and the British government. These concluded when a treaty was signed by the negotiating teams in London on December 6, 1921. The key issue, however, was whether this document would be accepted by the broader Republican movement in Ireland, and this was where the road to civil war began. When this document, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, was published, it immediately led to major disagreements in Ireland, specifically within the Republican movement. Brian explains why this document was so controversial. The biggest question really is sovereignty and the symbolism of of the oath and the membership of the British Empire. The treaty is going to allow 26 counties, well the whole of Ireland, if Northern Ireland agreed to this, which of course they wouldn't have done, 
But the idea is the treaty will cover the entire island and all of the 32 counties will become a free state, an Irish free state within the British imperial family. So there would be a parliament in Dublin, there would be a great deal of autonomy, far more than, than home rule. Crucially, the British military would leave most of, of the territory and you would have maybe scope for, for changes in taxation and so on in the, in the longer run. But you would have the degree of autonomy that Canada, Australia, New Zealand and so on had within the empire. Now, within that, there's a great deal of room for argument that this is a good deal or a bad deal. But crucially for Republicans, this obviously was not an independent republic. And they could point to the fact that within the dominions, there were still an oath to the uh, British king. And that also then, and, the, and this is pointed out, that there would still be British naval bases, that there would still be clauses within the treaty that allowed Britain to use Ireland in time of war. And there would have been an expectation that the free state would have sided with Britain anyway. Um, but overall, it's this idea, which again, a century on, people find it strange that maybe that the oath is so important, but the British regard the oath as very important. I mean, these are parts of the treaty that the British insist on. They are very clear that Ireland is not leaving the British family of nations. They're making concessions, but these are concessions to keep Ireland within what's what they now call a commonwealth, and it's the first time that that term is used. So Irish Republicans point out this is not an independent republic. It's not sovereignty. It's not the independence we fought for. Harry Boland makes the point that this would be an acceptance by Irish Republicans that Ireland was part of the British family of nations. And he said, this is something that no Irish nationalist has ever accepted. Even the Home Rule movement would have always said, Ireland was conquered, it was taken against its will, historically. But we're voluntarily joining that family of nations now by accepting the treaty. So a lot of these arguments can be boiled down to the issue of republic independence versus membership of the, the Commonwealth. And it very much coalesces around this idea of an oath. Now, within that, there are arguments made about the, the North will obviously exclude itself from this, so part of, of the island will be lost. The British will maintain bases. You know, people make the argument as well that, you know, what's all right for the Australians and New Zealanders and Canadians is not all right for Ireland. Ireland has a completely different history to Britain. We are not, again, part of, 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 of the, the Anglo-Saxon story and so on. So all these arguments are made and, and probably the most obvious one is that this is this is a betrayal of what we've been fighting for it is not what we took up arms for in 1916 and that goes back and forth outside of of the tds who are debating this obviously that argument is being played out within Sinn Féin within Cumann Amman and within the IRA crucially as well. The reasons why people took the stances they did ranged from place to place and person to person as Brian now explains, the majority of IRA volunteers were opposed to the terms of the treaty. But the situation was not as clear-cut within Sinn Féin and the broader Republican movement. I think there's, there's a whole myriad of factors in why people make the decisions they do. And there's a core of people whose views can be summed up in, in the kind of the phrase, if it's good enough for Mick Collins, it's good enough for me. You know, Collins and others like Richard Mulcahy and, and Owen O'Duffy and Sean McKeown and so on, very active IRA leaders who support the treaty, do bring a certain amount of people with them. And, and their their presence on the pro-treaty side is then used to argue that these men couldn't be in favour of, of something less. You know, this is a, a good deal because these men want it. 
But at a local level, I mean, the IRA was very unprepared for compromise and there hadn't really been an effort to to um, kind of tell them that there might be a compromise. I mean, the, the British had been clear from the start that these all these nego- negotiations were about the maintenance of Ireland within the empire. So that wasn't a secret. But nevertheless, at a local level, the IRA really seems to have seen the truce period as, as a breathing space and as effectively a time to reorganise, recruit, train, rearm and prepare for the next round of conflict. So there's no, you know, for, for 75% maybe in theory of the IRA, there's nothing less than a republic will do. But that's a very often, again, a decision made by local officers and the men more or less follow them. Now, when I say 75%, it is in no way as clear as that at local level because the divisions break down in, in a majority against the treaty. But in every area, you'd have pro and anti-treaty sides. So in Tipperary, the majority might be anti-treaty, but they're still pro-treaty IRA p- people. Whereas in Donegal, the majority might be pro-treaty, but you will still have anti-treaty I- IRA men there too. So within the IRA, you'll always find that there's people from every part of the country taking opposing views. And again, within the six counties, it's quite a complex situation because a lot of the IRA there, which many people find surprising, end up either neutral or supporting the treaty and, and a s- substantial number of them actually end up fighting for it. But the IRA as an organisation overwhelmingly does say no to the treaty. Um, within Common Amon, again, very quickly a majority are against and there's a, a pro-treaty women's organisation founded as a result. Within Sinn Féin, within the, the, the elite, the TDs and so on, it's, it's a much closer fight. Obviously, it's, the treaty is accepted by five votes in the end there. And that probably reflects, again, among the more civilian political organisation, a much greater willingness to accept what's seen as, as a decent compromise. This issue of how the wider population reacted is a complex and important part of the story that I'll return to later in the episode. But in terms of the actual outbreak of the Irish Civil War, it was tensions within the Republican movement that were key. And these had been rising since the earliest days of 1922. The treaty, controversial as it was, had been ratified by the Doyle on January the 7th, 1922, but the debates had been bitter and personalised. While advocates of the treaty, led by Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, set about establishing a provisional government of the Irish Free State until elections could be held the following June, opponents of the treaty, led by Eamon de Valera, who had resigned his position as president of Sinn Féin, walked out in protest. While politicians were clearly now bitterly divided, more important and substantial opposition to the treaty emerged from within the ranks of the IRA. When it met in convention in Dublin in March 1922, it rejected the terms of the treaty. Furthermore, the convention repudiated the IRA's allegiance to the Free State Government. It was unclear as to what would happen now. Meanwhile, Michael Collins and the pro-treaty leaders who had established the Free State Government had raised what was called the National Army, a military they could control and rely on. By the end of March 1922, Ireland effectively had two rival armies, the National Army loyal to the government of the Free State and the IRA. Indeed, this would soon be obvious on the streets of Dublin, when an armed IRA garrison occupied the forecourts, a major complex in the city centre, in what was a challenge to the authority of the new Free State leaders. While these tensions would ultimately lead to the outbreak of war, I want to pull back now though and look at how the wider Irish population 
was viewing these developments. Irish society in 1922 was more complex than is often portrayed and it can be surprising how many Irish people in those months had more pressing concerns than the treaty. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One of the, the features of the Civil War is that you imagine a society torn in two uh, with almost everybody taking one side or the other. And of course, it's a little bit more complicated in that because the kind of overwhelming public perception or view in the aftermath of the signing of the treaty is that this is a good thing and that it should be supported. So the Catholic Church very quickly, dozens of sermons by priests and and statements from bishops endorses the treaty. The kind of chambers of commerce and the business organisations and so on endorse the treaty. The farmers organisations more or less unanimously endorsed the treaty. Um, and, and every newspaper bar one, every local newspaper and every national newspaper essentially agrees that the treaty is is either a good deal or the, the best deal possible or, you know, the best deal under the circumstances. So the public perception, the kind of public course would be that this is overwhelmingly supported. And even though, I mean, there is evidence later on when we do have an election in June uh, 22, the pro-treaty side win a majority. But well before the election, it's stated as fact that the majority support the treaty, even when there's no way of really measuring that. Now, I think at ground level, the picture is a bit more complex. And I suppose what had been happening, that's very important, is that there had been a truce since July 1921. And during that period, then people had got used to the idea that peace was here to stay. And therefore, the treaty is seen as perhaps, you know, more or less ensuring that that peace remains and therefore there's a kind of a tacit acceptance of it. But again, at at micro level, I think there were all kinds of opinions. And and then there's probably a a section of opinion that aren't that concerned about it, that aren't following it minutely. But but certainly, you know, the the pillars of society or or what's later called the stake in the country people certainly make it clear very quickly that the treaty is, is a good deal. One of the largest movements on the island was that of organised labour. The membership of Irish trade unions was in the hundreds of thousands and they had played an important role in the War of Independence. Brian explains how they viewed the growing tensions in Ireland. 
the, firstly, uh, as you said, the labour movement is a very substantial part of society and, and nearly a quarter of a million people are members of trade unions and they've got a very vocal kind of outlet in the Voice of Labour newspaper. And what that tends to say is that we're not, you know, whatever the Republicans decide, it isn't going to be the republic that we've desired. So the, Repo- the Labour movement has to be prepared to stand its own candidates and act independently. And, and, you know, they base this on the fact that since the truce period, the Republican movement had been taking a, a less benign view of Labour activity. So by December 1921, the IRA is being used to break strikes. And sometimes that's very controversial. And that's both wings of what becomes the pro and anti-treaty side. They're both involved in this and the Department of Labour the Ministry of Labour is is arguing, you know, for order, for an end to industrial strife and so on. So there's a bit of a, a the, the Labour movement and the Republican movement are increasingly at loggerheads. So I suppose one way of expressing this is to say, well, we're taking an independent stance. We're not involved directly in these talks anyway, but we will take part in an election if it happens. Now, there is an avoidance of, of saying then whether they are actually pro or anti-treaty. They're implicitly pro-treaty by very fact that they're going to accept whatever political arrangement comes out. And their way of around that to get around that is to say, but of course, we're still going to fight for Labour's interests. They do try to get involved in peace talks during the spring of 1922 to try and act as a go-between between the, the new provisional government and, and the anti-treaty side. And also then there's a very large general strike held in April 1922, which expresses a very strong um, sense that lots of workers don't want there to be a military conflict. And I suppose, again, you know, some sections of the labour movement, particularly the unskilled, so-called unskilled workers and so on in Dublin and elsewhere, wouldn't have been hugely represented in the Republican movement. And maybe they feel, you know, slightly distant from it. And again, it tends to be, this strike tends to be dismissed as a pro-treaty strike. Well, if it was a pro-treaty strike, then the pro-treaty side were able to mobilise the hell of a lot of workers because it is a very, very big strike. So I think it has to be seen as as evidence that Labour is both a force, but also that it's not directly involved in the pro and anti-treaty argument. But implicitly, they're going to accept whatever political arrangement. And it really kind of reflects that right throughout the War of Independence period, the leadership of the Labour movement always kind of hedged their bets and, and stayed on the side of, of Sinn Féin and the Republicans and are now staying more or less on the side of the, the pro-treaty leadership. But, you know, with with the proviso that they, they, they don't want military conflict. There was also opposition to the treaty on the far left of Irish politics, as Brian now explained. On the far left, there's a more explicit critique of the treaty as a capitalist a deal, as an imperialist deal, as essentially a section of the Republican movement making their peace with imperialism. Um, and that, that's the view put forward by the Communist Party and by a few others, people like Roddy Connolly and so on. And again, they're... they're Analysis is very interesting because it's certainly influenced by the the common term. But what they're saying is that, yes, this is an imperialist deal. Uh, It has to be opposed. They ultimately believe the IRA should fight against the treaty. But at the same time, they're honest enough to acknowledge that actually, and I think in one of the the issues of their newspaper, which is called the Workers' Republic, they say that, that the great mass of ordinary Irish people, including many of the workers and landless peasants, are ambivalent about this whole question, that actually they're not really, um, it isn't the, 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 the biggest issue for them. And, and I suppose that's reflected in the elections in June 22, when Labour does very well. And, and in a lot of places that had seen fairly intense class conflict, 
you've got a lot of union organizers who are labor candidates elected and, and that would reflect i suppose you know workers wanting something different rather than simply the pro or anti-treaty side so even though those on the left who are very anti-treaty kind of do realize that actually they're they're they've got to con- kind of convince people why they should be anti-treaty it's not taken as a given even by many um, workers. So far we have been discussing events taking place in the Irish Free State which did not include obviously the six northeastern counties of Ireland which compromised Northern Ireland. Now Brian explains how the build-up to the Irish Civil War impacted and played out in these six counties. Given the recent conflict in the north people often assume that partition and the status of Northern Ireland was a key issue. However, reactions there in 1922, as Brian now will explain, surprises many today. The political point about the treaty and what it says about partition and also then the facts on the ground, there'd been no truce in Northern Ireland. Belfast had seen even more intense violence during the truce period. So the IRA had had no breathing space and they'd been fighting all the time. And there's very vicious conflict along the new border as well into 1922. And a lot of the units involved in that fighting in Monaghan and in Donegal and so on were pro-treaty in their majority, led by people like Ona Duffy and, and Joe Sweeney. In Belfast, there's a great, again, um, among the IRA leadership, they're very close to people like Mulcahy, particularly, again, to Collins and O'Duffy. O'Duffy goes to Belfast as a truce liaison officer. So a lot of the people they know are pro-treaty. And the pro-treatyites, I mean, there's a lot of, of, of smoke and mirrors here because you're dealing with you know, the IRB as well and other secretive organisations. But Collins and O'Duffy and others, and others tend to give the Northern IRA the impression that whatever happens with the treaty, they're not going to be abandoned. And during the spring of 1922, there is ultimately an abortive offensive against the Northern Ireland state in which the pro and anti-treaty side cooperate and in which weapons are supplied by Collins and others to the Northern IRA. So there would be some personal loyalty towards Collins, possibly also harder to, you know, evaluate, but a feeling that maybe some of the anti-treatyites are a bit abstract in the way they talk about the crown and the oath and dominion status, where, you know, this is clearly a question of partition and the pro-treatyites seem to have, you know, at least a more clear idea that, yes, we're against that. And in the treaty, there's going to be a boundary commission established, which will look at the parameters of Northern Ireland and people in Fermanagh and Tyrone and Derry City and and South Armagh kind of expect the boundary commission will say, you logically should be part of of this new Irish free state. So people do kind of think that partition mightn't last that long. So it's not clearly for them a war over partition. And that's why a lot of people drop out disillusioned and, and some are neutral but also then you've got a significant number who do end up in free state uniform. And that, and that is very confusing at the time and, and does cause, you know, some of the anti-treatyites are particularly bitter about it and they, they do kind of resent the Northerners to some extent for, for a couple of decades afterwards. Despite efforts to defuse the situation, tensions continue to rise between the Free State National Army and the IRA through the spring and early summer of 1922. A gun battle broke out in Kilkenny in early May when IRA volunteers opposed to the treaty occupied Kilkenny Castle. Meanwhile, in Dublin, a large Republican garrison took over the four-course complex on the quays in the city. It's worth stating at this point, opponents to the treaty were by no means unified in their assessment of how to proceed. Even within the IRA, there were considerable disagreements about strategy, with many arguing a civil war should be avoided at all costs. 
it was still hoped that some form of compromise could be reached. Ultimately, there was never a public referendum to measure public mood on the treaty, but the first general election of the Irish Free State took place on June 4, 1922. This did offer the public a chance to vote for candidates who reflected their views on the Anglo-Irish Treaty. But the outcome of this election was not as decisive as you might expect. Brian now explains how there were several factors at play when people went to the polls in Ireland in June 1922. It's a complicated election because Republicans firstly would have argued that the entire debate has taken place under the threat of a return to war with Britain if the anti-treaty side wins. So therefore, um, Liam Mellows argued it's during uh, during the treaty debates, it's not the will of the people, it's the fear of the people. Secondly, the Republican movement of Sinn Féin had tried to present a united face. Essentially, Collins and de Valera had agreed that the same candidates would be returned, that Sinn Féin candidates would go forward no matter what their views on the treaty were, and they'd all come back essentially, and that was a way of maintaining the unity of, of the movement. Now, there are critics of that who say, well, you, you weren't giving the electorate any choice in the matter then if you're just telling them to elect the same people. So in this election, they do have alternatives. They have Labour, they have the farmers, a good few of whom are ex-unionists, obviously represent the larger farming constituency. You've got a whole host of independents too, many of them ex-home rulers, and all of them do pretty well given the the circumstances of the elections. Another complicating factor is, yes, all men over 21 have the vote, but it's an old register. It's a 1918 register, so there would have been people, men who'd come on, come of age since then who can't vote. And it's still women over the age of 30. The age hadn't been lowered yet. And that's a bone of contention as well, because some of the anti-treatyites argue that the pro-treaty side doesn't want younger men and younger women to vote because they might be more liable to vote against the treaty. On the eve of the election, Michael Collins repudiates the deal and says, vote for candidates who reflect your view on the treaty, essentially. And as a result, the pro-treatyites do win a majority. They certainly outpoll the anti-treaty side, a number of whom, including fairly prominent people, lose their seats. But the Labour gets over 20% of the vote. It gets a slightly higher vote in numerical terms than the anti-treaty side does. You also have a substantial vote for farmers, substantial vote for independents. Now, taken all together, Labour, farmers, independents and pro-treaty Sinn Féin, who are all open to sitting in the new parliament, that means there's a very large majority for the treaty. But there's a substantial minority of over 20% of the electorate anyway against it. The election isn't, it isn't as clear a, a democratic signifier as, as it might be if it was took place with a full register and under different circumstances. A further point that complicates matters was the comparatively high numbers of people who didn't vote. Given this was the first chance people had to voice their views on the treaty, you might expect a huge turnout. But as Brian explains, there was a considerable minority who didn't for various reasons. In the June 22 election, there's a significant, you know, abstention rate for people who don't vote at all. Again, I suppose if we, if we imagine this is the, the biggest issue of the day and that this is the issue that could send society to civil war, you still get maybe 30% of the electorate, as it stood, who didn't bother to vote. So, I mean, I think it it might have seemed abstract to some of the poorest people. Then you would also have a section of Irish unionists who probably are so disgusted by the whole idea of leaving the United Kingdom that they're not going to take a very strong stand in an electoral contest, certainly, and maybe 
and you also have maybe former home rulers and so on who are you know alienated by the whole thing although there's reasons for all those people to support the treaty and ultimately i think most of those type of people do even if only reluctantly but yeah i mean i think again the evidence of of the labor vote would suggest that a section of people who don't feel the treaty is really the most important issue might be attracted to their standard again independents also do well and some of them are former home rulers people like Alfie Byrne Alfie Byrne gets a huge vote in what's now Dublin Central and uh, he comes second and Lawrence O'Neill who'd been a former home ruler as well I think gets tops the poll and then the two Sinn Féin candidates from pro and anti-treaty side come in third and fourth so you know in in a central Dublin constituency you actually have a much bigger vote for independents than you have for republicans I suppose that again reflects the diversity and also the fact that the once the truce was declared in July 1921, that kind of unity that you'd seen around this issue, it does, the movement does begin to fracture, even before there's any kind of formal treaty. Ultimately, the results of that election did not diffuse the rapidly rising tensions in Irish society. A few weeks after the poll, the government of the Free State would take a fateful step and attack the IRA garrison, which had been occupying the four courts in Dublin since the previous April. This would be the first chapter in the Irish Civil War and that story is covered in part two of this series. Get part two and the rest of the Irish Civil War series today by becoming a supporter of the Irish History Podcast. You can do that really easily at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.